welcome to episode 20 of Dano Says So. Um, when I finished the first set of 10 episodes, I decided I want to talk to a close friend and just have a conversation that was relaxing for me and where I could laugh and where I could just get very honest with somebody who spoke my language. The first 10, I did that with Billy Rubin. Billy was immediately available to me. The second 10, I'm doing it with Gavin Oglesby, who was an even more obvious choice, I think, in the minds of most people. Gavin and I made all of our first music together. We were both in No For An Answer. We were both in Carrie Nation. After that, he was in Ignite, Killing Flame, Trigger Man, uh, Funeral. Um, that's an inside joke. Uh, days, a lot, a lot, a lot of music after the fact. He's also extremely well known as one of one of the more prolific graphic artists and just artist artists in the last 30, 40 years of punk rock. So Gavin Oglesby, thank you for doing this. Thank you. It's my first kid show. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, besides being a unique uh, guitarist with a style that's definitely all his own, my graphic style and my extremely underdeveloped uh, skill set with visuals is almost a complete and total bite of all things Gavin from the first you know, 20 years we knew each other. For you, I want to start things off with a chicken and the egg question. Did the music come first? Not making it, but just the interest in it. Did the music come first or did the art come first? Oh, definitely the art. Um, when I was in school, I was pretty shy and had stuff going on at home and, and so forth. And I kind of found that if I were to draw in classes, you know, when I was in third or fourth grade, people would kind of come to me and I would kind of initiate conversation and, you know, how'd you do that type thing. So it was definitely the the art thing. Uh, originally, I decided I was going to do architecture, but I realized at a certain point that all the architects I'd met through kind of the family construction business, I didn't really like all that much. And I kind of figured that's not really going to be a good environment, good fit for me. Plus, mm -hmm. you know, you've got all the uh, the type A alpha personality construction guys that go along with being an architect and how I had heard my entire life that architects don't know how to build buildings. <laughs> yeah, I don't really see I don't really see you running with that set. Yeah, not not so much. <laughs> yeah. So then music comes into your life. I mean obviously I mean we sort of came into mu making music within a year of each other, but just the passion for music or the preoccupation with it and with punk rock culture, that showed up when? You know, I was actually trying to think about it because uh, there's another um, guy I listen to who interviews people exclusively on punk rock and how they how they found it. Mm -hmm. And I can't for the life of me think about where I noticed it first. I, I do remember watching something at my grandparents' house, which would have had to have been about, I'm thinking I was probably age 13 when they, 13 when they died. So somewhere around that time when... Mm -hmm. uh, there was a Don Rickles show and they had uh, a punk band on it. I think it was it's like even better than Quincy. Yeah, it predates Quincy at least. But uh, I think it might have been the Dickies, which I kind of found out much, much later. It seems kind of odd to me, but yeah, that was my first experience. And I, I didn't really think much about it other than, you know, that it was kind of the stereotypical TV show thing where they were all scared of the punkers and the punkers were doing crazy stuff nihilistic self-destructive things and nobody mm -hmm. could understand it did you do but the thing that i went through my first experience with actual punk rockers you know in the same 
hundred square feet as me. They scared the hell out of me, but that drew me to it. It was like, yeah. ooh, they're scary. I want to be them. You know? No, I remember having a conversation with my mother, like uh-huh. vividly remembering, kind of trying to defend it before I I had actually been in any way like connected myself with it. But I, you know, I'd gotten the decline record um, thinking that I think the punk people would be a lot more accepting because they see, they were so ostracized and so uniformly outcast, it seemed to me, or so accepting of things that were different that I might feel like I was a better fit. Um, right. When I was in school, it wasn't necessarily that I was an outcast, but I didn't really feel like I was connected. And then when I went to uh, junior high school, that got that all got a lot worse. So I kind of I got to the point where I didn't feel like I was accepted, and I just kind of thought, well, if they're not going to be accepting of me, you know, fuck them. I'm I'm going to reject them I'm, and kind of make it almost like rebrand the the outcast um, ideal. What I remember before you and I even knew each other, you know, and I had to sort of retroactively organize my thoughts and realize it was the same person, was that you've always been an image maker. I mean, you were one of the most visually striking punk rockers in Orange County. And people knew of you purely by physical reputation, not as some kind of a mauler or something that has just damn the coolest looking punk rocker around. You know, the guy down by the guy down by McDonald's and Sears, that's cool shit, you know. Um, but where I'm going with that is... Did punk rock occur to you pretty early as a canvas for your talents or a place where your already existing skills and passion for art could really find an easy nail to hang on? No, it, it never really occurred to me that I would be in any way part of it because I was just, yeah. I was fascinated by it. And I've always been fascinated by subcultures and kind of outcasts and, you know, like the, the people that got tattoos in the thirties and, uh, right. It's like the really kind of the people that just, how did they even find that stuff at the time? And so I was, I was kind of considered myself more of a, a, a voyeur. And then there came a point where I had an opportunity. I actually, I met the MIA guys and I had really liked them before they even moved to California. I just kind of stumbled on them through Robbie and Barack or something like that. Mm-hmm. And was given the opportunity to do their their record cover, and I had never really thought about it. I just kind of figured, well, I like to draw; it'd be fun to do, and you know, at least I could be part of it in some on some small level. And it's not really something I'm proud of, but I love that I remember working on that that record and finishing it just before my 16th birthday. So that Murder kind of in a Foreign Place was your first cover. Yeah. Damn. Hey, you're yeah. starting small. <laughs> yeah. Start with the alternative tentacles and MIA. Yeah. Um, yeah, it, the, the art thing kind of just uh, just happened because I didn't really realize that, that people didn't have ideas. It, one thing that always struck me as odd about bands is, is a lot of bands will have absolutely no idea how they want to come across. Right. And, I probably think too much about that, but it drives me crazy when I see a band that, you know, they'll have this great record and it looks like there, there had been no effort put into the, uh, the packaging or the, the sound of it even, or even like the pictures. And I mean, I know they're, 
within punk rock, especially, there were lots of people that were taking pictures and just kind of trying to trying to imprint it some way in their mind. I think that's kind of what I was doing the first the first shows I went to was just trying to to not be noticed and get my ass kicked and not be noticed as a as a an outsider or intruder, but also to kind of take note of what was going on and what was the you know kind of what people were doing how people were acting just because it was such an alien thing to me and mm-hmm. uh, i just i couldn't really imagine how somebody would embrace that but at the same time i was completely drawn to it what's occurring to me while you're telling while you're telling me all of this is that you had a big head start on me because the the, the person you're describing is not the person who hit my radar in you know 83 84 or 84 or so is yeah. you you uh we're clearly not trying to be unobtrusive by then. You were, you were, you know, you were as easy to spot as a Christmas tree in June. Well, I, I, at that point, I think I was just all in. Like I, yeah, things were going sideways at home. Things were going sideways at school. I think I had my first girlfriend, so I was much more, uh, I was much more cognizant of image and kind of how you portray yourself. And actually, something I hadn't really thought about till right now is. Um, I had gone to a public school and wasn't really doing well. And we decided that I might do better at a private school. So my mother and I, so I went to a private school and I found that people just completely didn't understand the punk rock thing. And I was sort of able to, to mold the perception of me just by how I carried myself. Like I suddenly, suddenly wasn't the guy that people called Chaka when I was in third grade you know, didn't really know how to, how to deal with it. I was kind of like this mysterious, you know, punker from the other side of town, like from across the tracks, even though I was right. like from a bad area, but it was a fairly affluent school. Mm-hmm. So that, I think at a certain point, that, that's when I really got into, I'm going to embrace the difference. And if you kind of redefine the rules of what you like and what you, or how you want to be accepted, those rules are a lot easier to attain or those goals are a lot easier to attain. So I kind of decided that I wanted to be this thing. I wanted to, to, you know, be artistic, but kind of have an edge to me, not no pun intended, but um, I just kind of like bought into the whole, I guess, artistic lifestyle and that seemed to fit nicely within it. Okay. Um, you and I, though we met through John Brutes, but you and I, Casey Jones, John Masterpolo, and a handful of other names that won't be as familiar to other people. There's no getting around it. We all met in the immediate orbit of uniform choice. Yeah. And do you want to kind of describe the role that they played in Orange County at the time for the unanointed? Well, when when uniform choice popped up, um, to me at least, I was in high school and I went to Corona Mar High School, which is where the original uniform choice began. And my only knowledge of them prior to seeing them was in the weight room at Corona del Mar, somebody had written uniform choice and chalk on the brick wall. And just for whatever reason, it just stayed there. I'm thinking it probably had to have been Pat Dyson. And who's going to take it down if it was Pat Dyson? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think they, is that a problem, the light going off? No, we're good. Okay. The punk rock show, goddammit. Yeah. Break something. 
you know, my original idea is I thought it'd be cool to do it from a closet with just a light bulb hanging that would kind of swing like I was being held captive. <laughs> but I, I decided I'll save those for the association meetings at my house. Anyway, the, the um, that was the first time I had heard a uniform choice. And then for what, they just kind of popped up on some bill. I think they were playing at the concert factory. And I had never seen them before, but I kept seeing all these big, like, tough, sort of not punk rock looking guys. And, you know, the, the Dubars family and all that. And every one of them was wearing a uniform choice shirt. So it was kind of, uh, they came out of the gates for me, at least my immediate experience is having this really, really strong, visible brand. They I mean, were... I, they were merch conscious and merch driven before the term was common. Yeah. Know? Yeah. And my perception of the shirt, the first straight and alert shirts is, I mean, it just probably because it's UC and there's UCI and UCLA, it looked very collegiate to me and very not punk rock. But then when they played, I was, I was kind of blown away by how, how similar to, to Stalag 13 and Minor Threat they were. And there just weren't bands like that at the time, especially uh, in Orange County and, and uh, well, California in general, because there was America's Hardcore and they were mostly straight edge. Mm -hmm. But I can't really think of another one that existed at the time. So it was really, it, it was really kind of awe-inspiring to have that, have such a good band and such a powerful band that close to me. Mm -hmm. um, meaning the ge geographically because to me the all those the punk and like really hardcore bands were east coast bands black flag was kind of they were a hardcore band but it was just a different energy the yeah. it seems like when, when uniform choice and the kind of the straight edge bands of that era got moving there was almost like a rolling runaway train feel to it whereas black flag kind of had more of a you know, we're just going to keep hammering the nail. Yeah. What I remember is that Orange County is that Orange County got hit by Uniform Choice, kind of like a grenade, and there was just such a physically intense thing. And their following made made such a statement at shows. And when you're younger, I don't think the drill down is real necessary. More like Alpha Omega thinking. And this was a big pack of exciting, daring, fearless Alpha types. And yeah. the people, well, and the people in their orbit became a lot of pretty well-known creative people, and a lot of people who produced a lot on their own, and arguably have stayed more prolific than Uniform Choice themselves. But I mean, I'm grateful for their existence, if for nothing else, than the people they brought me in contact with. Yeah, it's interesting that their their career was relatively short-lived, but that core group of you know the us and the. Um, the people that were going to those early shows in particular are all still kind of connected to some extent, not, you know, we don't see each other all the time, but right. Like when I was in, in bands with Joe Foster, one of the things that, that really appealed to me about that idea is we have a very similar, unique background and aesthetic and, and a mindset when it comes to punk rock. And I thought that that was, that was something I kind of, I should hold on to. Yeah. And it, as it turns out, it, it didn't seem like it was worthwhile, but there, I still kind of, there are certain people I look at that way. It just, uh, mm -hmm. oh yeah, those, those guys were there and those guys were the, you know, um, 
in a sense, the, uh, the inventors of Orange County Hardcore, even though they weren't really in bands. It's just kind of that, that feel of that almost gang-like, um, I shouldn't say gang, but club-like mentality or like we're just, we're a group and we're strong as a group. And, yeah, and, and I think it's lost in hardcore history. People's first understanding of Orange County really goes no deeper than the membership of Uniform, yeah. Cho Uniform Choice when you're talking about that. And really, OCHC, UC Boys, Hardcore 84 types, very, fairly large group of people, mm -hmm. you know. And, and I bristle at that as much as anything else when it comes to sort of how Southern California hardcore is archived. But, you know, grab me a fucking river. We've gotten to fly around the world on this stuff, you know. Yeah. Well, the, the uniform choice, I think, was – I think I perceived it differently as this really – super powerful entity because we'd see them at these shows and it would just be like these massively chaotic shows. Like yeah. I was thinking the, the shows at Flash Dance with Uniform Choice in particular are probably the, my favorite shows that I've ever been to. Like that was probably my favorite club because it was so small and it was so immediate and it was just easy to get to and just everything about it just kind of worked for me. And it was, it was a the good Flash Dance. Yeah. The flash dance is where this overly milked picture of you and I hanging on each other, singing backups with Dubar comes from. And what people who see that picture, some of them know that the weird fucking hippie with the white sleeves is actually me. But what yeah. they don't realize is that you and I didn't know each other from Adam in that moment. That's two complete yeah. strangers. That's two complete strangers joining on that mic. Yeah, and I remember vividly, for some reason, seeing you at that show thinking, why would somebody do white sleeves on their jacket? Like, it seems really cool now. But at the time, just like, that's not very dark and scary. <laughs> yeah, well. <laughs> get to know yeah. me. <laughs> um, so let's get into music. Otherwise, this is going to be what a Dan and Gavin interview could predictably be, which is about three and a half hours long. Uh -huh. um, the story of how you became a guitar player, I think, is uh, the more polite way is to let you tell it. But including how you actually learned the frets, playing the whole nine yards how the decision was made, how the self-education came about, all of it. It's a pretty good tale. Well, again, when I was in high school, not playing any sports, but working out in the weight room in, in a corner of our high school, somebody, actually somebody whose jacket I did, came to me with a mysteriously cheap um, guitar. And he had access to about five or six of them, and they were like $50. And I had never played guitar, is mysterious a pseudonym for stolen? Is that what you're saying here? In retrospect, yeah, probably. Okay, all right. Just, just kind of looking at looking back at the guy and how it came about. I'm thinking they were probably, they might have been a little hotter than the pickups. Okay, fair yeah. enough. Uh, but anyway, I just kind of like, I was just sort of amused by the idea of me having a guitar because I, I had no musical inclination or. or real interest other than really being obsessive and studying anything I like. So I'd study pictures of bands I like. And I got the guitar and, you know, didn't know how to do anything on it. Didn't know how to put strings, didn't have a pick, didn't, you know, couldn't figure out why it wasn't louder. Just everything about it I didn't know how to do. So being pre-internet, I uh, thought, well, the only way I'm going to learn is I'm going to have to look at pictures because I'm not taking lessons. I'm not going to you know, spend my money on lessons. I just blew $50 on this guitar. 
so I look at Flipside and kind of try to figure out, you know, how the guys in Social Distortion were holding the neck of the guitar and how, um, you know, I'm, I'm trying to think of other bands that I, I remember noticing at that time. But just basically looking at a lot of self-taught people just mangling the guitar necks, trying to, you know, make this mm-hmm. thing that they, they probably don't even know what it is, but they know right. they want to so I, I got this really odd uh, perception of how to play guitar by looking at people who taught themselves. And I also remember uh, I used to go to uniform choice practice as much as I could because I, I was just so in awe of how, how powerful they were. And I'd watch Vic, the guitar player, and just how incredibly fast his hands seemed to go. Mm-hmm. And not ever having played guitar or been around even guitar players, I didn't realize that he was doing alternating strokes in my mind he was just doing all down strokes um so that's what i tried to do you know not not by any uh not because it sounded better just because that's i misread how he was playing mm-hmm. and in retrospect i'm really glad i did it but it got to the point where if i wasn't doing down strokes in certain songs the song would just fall apart because once if you're doing all down strokes and it gets too fast, suddenly you're going up and down and it's a completely different dynamic and it's a lot harder to be, for me to be tight at least. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it's a, it, therein lies the Gavin Oglesby sound. And, yeah. Yeah. yeah it's, um, it's looking at pictures. Exactly. So the first thing we did together was carry nation, but not carry nation as people understand it. Yes. It was, it was very much a Tonka truck version of carry nation. With our with our friend John Bruce in his garage, uh, how would you describe that? Um, hellish. I, I, have, <laughs> I didn't expect you to say that. I have fond memories of it. Well, no, no, it was it was. I have great memories of it, but just um, I have a tape of it somewhere, and it's just it's painful. Like I just we had a drummer who was a really nice guy, but just not not into the same punk rock we were. He was into the British stuff and the damned and stiff little fingers and so forth. Mm -hmm. So he just was not getting the the hardcore aesthetic we wanted. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think we did the best we could, but my amp was no, no match for your unamplified voice. (laughs) Remember the, uh, the garage got egged at least once while we were practicing (laughs) by the neighborhood kids, which, Set me up nicely for Trigger Man. <laughs> yeah, it was a uh, it, it it was it was interesting, but that's where the 1985 comes from. That people don't necessarily understand, you know, yeah. on, the, on the record. Um, yeah, where we practiced probably four times. Yeah, yeah, probably. You yeah. know, and uh, yeah, it was it was it was not destined for survival. And you know, three of the four of us went on other things that probably suited us better. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was uh, a great time and I felt like it was a really good bonding Mm -hmm. exercise. And just personally, it was good for me to try to, to put myself out there in something that I wasn't really knowledgeable about. Um, And I remember being uh, sort of pained by it not working out, but I couldn't really see how it would work out at a certain point. 
So then I was trying to remember this when I was doing notes for you and I to talk today. The thing that's closer to the familiar version of Carrie Nation, the one that we sort of resurrected in 89, but that did happen in, in the earlier 80s, even the Dave Mello, Big Frank, Steve Larson, that's pre No For An Answer too, or not, or no? Is that during No For An Answer or was that before No For An Answer? No, that's before No For An Answer. God, we really like, pulled a rabbit out of our hats getting those guys in the fucking room. Yeah, I mean, Dave must have just felt like he had been kidnapped or something because it just, he was, I remember he showed up with a Les Paul and a Marshall half stack and just everything he played sounded great. Like he took kind of the, the mediocre, not real original riffs and just made them sound cool. There was a, there was a momentary version of, of Carrie Nation in 1985 or 86, if people don't grasp it. And it's the part where, where the permanent rhythm section came into play. But it was Gavin and I, Dave Mello from Uniform Choice, Big Frank Harrison, and Steve Larson from Instead. And for you and I, next level musically, it was like, uh-oh, real band, guys. Yeah, it's <laughs> like we jumped about three steps right there. Yeah. And I remember vividly just, like, anything Steve played sounded good. Right. Like, you could just hit a note and Steve would play it. It's like, this is a cool song. Right. And what I don't think a lot of people understand about that time in Southern California, how small a world it was, but how punk rock had to come through Southern California. All the biggest stuff had to come through the Olympic and then subsequently Fenders and then subsequently the country club is that without a band to his name, without a note of music behind him, Big Frank was a star like a band by himself. Yeah. Big, Big Frank actually drew in terms of band. He did it. You could tell people you're in a band with a big friend be like, oh, cool. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it was, if we had been, like, a really good band that had our shit together, it seemed like he could have made us huge. Yeah. Well, by by the time we swung back again and did it in 89, I think he was determined and willing to do so. And you and I were becoming a little too artsy-fartsy for the Carrie Nation model. You know, it was, it was, it was short-lived in its style, you know. Yeah, and also Carrie Nation was sort of, it was doing the things we loved that we knew were silly and kind of made us giggle. Oh, like, I think when we did it in 89, it was an asshole band. Yeah. I mean, you it know. It was kind of like making fun of all those tough guy bands. Each conversion by the sword, but of a five foot, five inch horde, was written a week after Project X was released. He was a little pointed. You know? <laughs> a little bit, yeah. yeah that's, uh... and, and, but what was funny is by then this dynamic had been disappearing from people thinking that I don't think has ever been gone from ours, which is that, you know, that punk rock is part of hardcore. You know, the fuck you is still a central ingredient for me. No, and it, it, I mean, it's, it's always kind of been an issue for me that the people that, that pop up out of hardcore and have no background in anything else, mm -hmm. like... Or I shouldn't say that. They don't. They have no punk rock background. It's like I saw. I remember seeing something one time that had. We talked about this briefly before, but had um, something that said hardcore, and it said sit in the collegiate collegiate type, and it said hardcore in the crass kind of stencil type. Right. And it was something to do like which one are you? And to me, it's always the you know I was never a huge fan of crass, but that aesthetic and that mindset 
I just, I love, I think it's so interesting. Right. And, and it's, it's an outsider form rather than the popular kids. And when, when straight edge became straight edge and hardcore in particular became the, the popular kids, I think you were kind of like, no, no, all of a sudden, all of a sudden we were writing lyrics about the guys that were in the van 30 yards ahead of us, you know, and, and we were, we were suddenly the only straight edge band in the country besides those mean old men from Boston that were wearing black from head to toe. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I remember you were like, I couldn't kind of didn't get them as a straight edge band. I get it right. now. Like I, but it's, it's probably, I didn't get them in the same way that people didn't get us as a straight edge band. Or right. Like, you know, there was a, there's a there's a Revelation podcast, and I've since come to know the guys a little bit. I mean, I don't think it's actually generated by Revelation, but this Where It Went podcast that mm-hmm. is going release by release and uh, in, oh, yeah. interviewing the bands on the releases, and they made the very safe rule of interviewing Casey for the You Laugh 7 Inch. <laughs> and they sort of refer to us as being a little bit coarser. You know, I think I get the main asshole label in it. But it's funny because my take on it, and when you look at the evolution of hardcore since 87, 88, and particularly straight edge hardcore, my take on that is, well, yeah. Yeah. You know? I mean, look at look at the fucking Dairy Queen strawberry milkshake that that music became without a few good assholes. Yeah, and you get the, like, it probably isn't a direct correlation, but the pop-pump thing seems like it kind of derived out of a certain type of hardcore and the emo mm-hmm. thing. Just like, it just doesn't... I just don't get it. Like it, to me, it seems antithetical to anything that, that I was drawn to punk rock to initially at least. And, and no for an answer is, you know, it wasn't like we were trying to be counter necessarily, but just, that's just kind of what came out. Well, to me, and this is why I was blessed to have, blessed in the most atheist of senses, but blessed to have you as a creative partner is that there was an immediate attempt to create our own brand. Everything was white on black. You worked exclusively with non-serif types, some of the influence of which is obvious and over your shoulder. You know, but, but we, As our records was. didn't look like anything else. Our records, did, yeah, well, that's me ripping you off on the banner behind me. That's nine feet of, I learned to do some of the things Gavin does. You know, um, but, uh, you know, not, we, 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 you know, we were on a label where nobody else on the label's record looked like looked like ours, and it stayed that way. And it stayed that way in the project projects that we've done separately for the next thirty years. And I'm very proud of that. But it is a case of me following your example, and which is a, which is a cool thing and a fun thing to observe as I get older. No, I'm I'm, I'm definitely flattered by it. I, I think you kind of do yourself a disservice and not uh, acknowledging that you do have a an aesthetic principle. Mm-hmm. A lot of people don't have that at all right i mean when i do when i do records for bands i stopped asking them what they wanted and i started (laughs) i'm sorry i find that hilarious but well a long time i realized that most bands don't know what they want they know what they don't want okay so if i were to go to a band like um like sensefield it shouldn't look like a crass record no you know, it shouldn't look like an exploited record. Mm-hmm. Uh, I kind of felt like you kind of have to define the define their aesthetic based on what they sound like and kind of the mood. Mm-hmm. Um, the whole thing I always felt like needs needs to be cohesive. 
Yeah, you and I are gonna, you and I, you and I are gonna record an epic here because we're we're at about forty minutes right now, and I feel like we're in the first half, but I don't fucking care. <laughs> okay, but if you cut all the. I don't, I don't edit. I, I pretend that I do these as intentional one-shots, but the reality is my editing skills are terrible. So, oh, okay. you know, okay. well, when the conversations really drag, I drop a still photo over the person sitting there with their mouth open, you know. <laughs> Again, this is their best album cover while they catch their breath, you know. So I'll watch for the, the overlays and the... <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Sure. I lost them there. Went back to the gym or the weight room. Um, I think realistically, neither one of us feels particularly compelled to talk too much about No for an Answer. I guess it would be unfair not to do it at all. But if somebody asks you to cap the the maybe two, three years that the band was a band, it's not three years, man. It's two. It's 87, 88, 89, huh? Yeah. But I mean, some combination of two. If you were to just to tell, tell the story or to try to encapsulate it in a few minutes, how would you describe it? Um, I never thought about it. The, like, as far as a career, I always felt that the way I would look at No Answer's career is always like the big steel doors at the back of the country club closing, and then you just jamming your fist in it and pushing through. Like, that just kind of, like that. It felt like we always kind of were able to make the most out of what we were, what was made available to us even though we might not have really earned it. I always felt like everybody sounded better. Everybody who was getting decent shows had better musicians in the band than you and I, because we were truly cave element, self-taught types. Um, yeah. With the exception of your art. Um, but we were the most intense in our own way, not jumping around, not dumb, silly physical intensity, but more of a mental and psychological intensity and a mindset towards the task at hand, you know? Mm -hmm. Well, I think that, that we, we had a perceived strength because we weren't, we weren't trying to be exclusive. Right. Or, I'm sorry, not exclusive, inclusive. Okay. You know, there were some bands that, you know, everything was, let's, let's get our hands together and, you know, do the, the high fives and all that. And we were kind of like, we don't like you. You know, we, <laughs> you might be able to sing this song good, but, you're different than us. Yeah. And I, I, there was a, a self-isolation that, that probably helped us. Yeah. The thing that I have mixed feelings about, and I'm glad that when we started doing, you know, the benefit shows later and when we were, you know, when we involved ourselves in the commemoration of Revelation and everything else is that we limited to the U, to the U Laugh lineup when we swung yeah. back on it. That's not a judgment against any of those guys. Uh, Sterling Wilson was fun as hell. Bratton was quite a drummer, but I don't think most people know that over less than three years, No For An Answer was still you and I, and I think either seven or nine other people, you know? Yeah. So, I mean, it was like just going back to the original lineup and cutting out the BS and sort of acting like there's this rule that, yeah, you don't play a No For An Answer now unless you did backups on the Screaming For Change album. That, that kind of works for me. Yeah. Well, also it kind of goes back to the, the core group of friends. Right. I mean, I love Sterling. Sterling's, I haven't talked to him in years, but he's, I have nothing but good memories about him, but he was a really good musician. That mm -hmm. wasn't really no answer. Yeah. And the same with Bratton. You guys are both entirely too good at this. Go stand, go stand over there. Yeah. And Bratton always gave me the impression he didn't really like us anyway. Like he, he kind of seemed like it was a, 
more of a career move than this is what I want to do. Yeah, I don't do, I don't disagree with that at all. Which I guess it's a backhanded flattery, but you know, yeah, I don't think it hurt him, but I don't think it really helped him either. Okay, so post no for an answer, we 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 did a revisited version of Carrie Nation that we've sort of talked about. Then you and I went to our own corners and did our own music respectively. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you remember about Trigger Man and about that era? It's a really broad question, but it was, you paired yourself with a completely different type of vocalist. The shackles were off in terms of, you stopped limiting yourself to two-minute songs. You know, you did a lot of really interesting things. You did a color record cover, damn it. You know? <laughs> um, blew the good budget. Yeah, so just, uh, hey, you're on my label. So uh, tell the kids about Trigger Man. Well, after No For An Answer and Care Nation, I kind of figured I wasn't going to do a band because just in terms of personalities, it seemed like I wasn't going to get anybody that that, uh, I identified with the same way that you and I had. We we had a lot of um, similar experiences at that point and seemed to have a similar idea of what the direction should be and where we should go and how we should go about it and all that. And I just didn't really have a lot of other people that I had a lot of faith in in kind of starting from scratch again. And also it was a time where, uh, I might be wrong on the dates, but it seemed like bands like Helmet and kind of the more metal type bands like Rest in Pieces and all that were were becoming not rest in pieces is a good example of becoming bigger, but you know, there was kind of the more of the tough guy thing. No, you're right. And I'm, I'm suddenly realizing it's occurring to me that played a role in why we both went the opposite direction. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, just natural contrarians, I guess. Yeah. But it's, I always liked the bands that seemed unaware of how scary they were. Right. Like, like Black Flag was just scary. The stains were just scary because yeah. you seem like, like what are these guys doing when we're not around? You know, when they're not on stage. Just way too much, way too much broken glass and unidentified powders in these people's lives. Yeah, a lot of stabbing and like syringes yeah. and drinking and just stuff that. I mean, I would always been interested in countercultures and, and uh, outsiders, but mm-hmm. it just was kind of a completely different level. And then when all the bands got it like into the tough guy sound, it seemed kind of silly to me because I, a lot of these people that I had had interactions with and been in uh, in their presence weren't really intimidating people. They were. It seemed like they were something. It was something they were trying to put on. Great and trying to accentuate an element of themselves rather than just happening to be that way. Um, yeah, that's, that's, I love the, the, like the antidote record, the, that first slow part. I, I think you called that to my attention that. Mm-hmm. Uh, There's a whole world of music that comes out of one or two or three songs off of two or three, seven inches. And yeah. hardcore has created a rut out of it for the subsequent 30 years. But yeah, they were amazing pieces of work. Something must yeah. be done by antidote. <laughs> Whether anybody wants to acknowledge it, you know, it, it birthed an era, for better or for worse. A rather yeah. long era. I, I mean, I have really fond memories of, of um, kind of the, 
when I moved to Irvine, just for some reason, I remember having been to Irvine and I had started college and you and I were doing things kind of with our, the smaller group of friends. And it just felt like, wow, this is kind of a new world that's opening up to me. And I remember through you, I had heard an antidote. I'd never heard it before. Mm-hmm. And you kind of reminded me how much the, how much I liked the negative approach of it, which I kind of, I had gotten and just kind of forgot about because it seemed so right. primitive. But, you know, to me, both those records were scary. The, the later straight edge tough guy bands and, and hardcore bands that came after just didn't really come off the same way. Maybe no, it, was just it, came off, it, it, it came off like a portrayal. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. It, it seemed like a, a, you know, almost in the same way that I felt like I had redefined myself when I went to a, a private school, it seemed like they came into this and said, okay, this is what we're going to be. Yeah. Right. At the risk of sometimes letting this be too much a conversation and not an interview, I apologize. But what what always occurred to me was like, or has occurred to me in years following, you know, you and I are both over six feet, and we haven't spent a day in our lives since 15 under 200 pounds, right? Yeah. Well, there couldn't have been anything more rebellious in 1989 and 1990 than for you to pair up with someone like John Mai with this much higher register in his voice and write the most melodic stuff you've ever written. And for me to go and ring the note for answer, carry nation bell to get the crowd there and then hit them with those on the phone. Yeah. You know, yeah. and the, and the thing is, is, there will be people who look at that music and realize there was a lot of melody going on, but that was all coming from very beautiful, small men in Irvine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it wasn't, it wasn't coming from the apes for us. That was a bold and contrarian move. You know, Farsight, yeah. Farsight, frankly, is just a different bloodline. You know, it's fantastic. It's incredible music. Same with reason to believe. But it's not coming from uh, the same pool of life experience. Yeah, and I, I mean, I think that even reasonably being, I mean, those guys are definitely hardcore guys. They've been around for a long time, mm-hmm. but they were also musicians. Yeah. We didn't really have that going for us. You've always know, you you knew them better than I did. You know, John had me announce them, like go on stage and announce them at the final Reason to Believe show, and I was able to think of twenty people who were in a better position to do that because they so much better understood the band and were so much closer to what they were doing, you being chief amongst them. But, I mean, look at how that worked out. I mean, you're, you're a primary when it comes to the art of sense field. Yeah, it's, it's funny because you doing that, it seems odd that, well, I guess Sterling was in the band. Yeah, but yeah it, it did seem like an odd, an odd choice to have you do it. You get the meanest, most obnoxious piece of shit we go. We know to get up there and say goodbye to the, you know, sweetest, most talented band in town. Yeah, a, a pretty much beloved band who wasn't always the most liked by us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And um, always, it wasn't all uh, roses and daisies. Yeah. Um, let's get into artwork because you've done so much music and I think it can fall in and out of the conversation naturally. But around that time, you started to do a lot more than just our records. Sensefield is a good segue into it. But for people who don't know, you do, you've done Pennywise covers. You've done – what's some of your favorite punk rock art that you've done that actually made it out there? I know some of your favorite stuff probably died on the vine. Because yeah. you have know, a more pr- 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 pronounced artistic eye. But stuff that people might have seen, what are your favorites? I mean, I, lo- I love the Sensefield record because they were so um... – they were so agreeable and so 
willing to do something that wasn't the cliche. They weren't trying to do something that was uh, overly sentimental, even though it definitely had that component to it. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't moody. And when I was, I think I was at Art Center at the time, and everything we were doing at Art Center, the, the whole mentality was everything was really dark and really moody and brooding and all that. I, it was kind of nice to get something that was completely different than that. It was a, a style that I had been playing around with. And I felt like after that, I can't really keep doing it because it's just going to be seen as the sense field artwork. Because I felt like it was so, so perfectly matched to that project. It was very specific. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it, I, I love that people like that record. Or, I mean, I shouldn't say that. I like that people like the artwork and love the record. And it seems to have a real emotional impact to a lot of people. Um, I wish the second one had, the, it didn't really come out the way it was intended, but it's just kind of part of doing the, doing artwork or music. Sometimes you just have to make changes or changes are made for you that you don't really appreciate. Um, but that's definitely probably my favorite. Any others? Because otherwise I can pick your brain about artistic psychology for an hour, which I would, which I would like to do. Yeah. Uh, I like the Head First record. Or I'm sorry, not Head First, uh, Downer. Okay. But that wasn't really widely released, and I think it, it didn't really print very well. But I kind of like the idea that if you look at the way that record is, is put together, it, I kind of tried to do the lyrics in a way that was um, like the person was actually the person that was singing or the character that was singing the record was writing the lyrics. Mm -hmm. So it gets to a particularly hard or troubling line. I put way more pressure on the pencil, like broke pencil leads and stuff like that, just mm -hmm. to kind of to try to like, I don't know if anybody would pick it up, but I just kind of like that little detail of there's something else going on. And that the sub current is something I always try to get in artwork. Like something that something had just happened that was strange and you're trying to, to recover from that or you know how do you, how are you gonna deal with that almost? An early piece that was really powerful, you know, despite what on the face of it would be kind of a spoon feeding name for the band and everything else, but even now the look and the impact of the hard stance seven inch, the face reality cover is a rarity in this music. It's a pretty high art piece and a yeah. pretty rudimentary part of the music scene. Yeah, it's, I kind of forgot about that one. Um, but that, that was, uh, to me, the juxtaposition is interesting. Mm hard -hmm. stance were really good musicians. Um, they were really tight. They always pretty much blew us off the stage in terms of, of uh, energy and just, mm -hmm focus and preparedness and all that. Um, but if you did, especially with a name like Hard Stance, if you did something that was, you know, all tough guy and, and trying to be flag-waving, um, I guess just tough guys, for lack of a better mm -hmm. description, I think it loses some of the impact. I think the nuance and the, the fact that there is more of a, an artistic feel to it and more of a... Um, a somber feel to me makes it way more interesting. Yeah. It's, 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 it's a great record cover. I mean, Carrie Nation similarly was an aesthetic you weren't seeing in hardcore at the time. 
very exacting, very precise, very clean lines. You know, almost, almost no, almost no, no, no gray values. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it was a remarkably bold move. Yeah, I remember when I first came up with the logo of the the guy with the sword. Just thinking, this is really kind of it's really striking, but. Like, is a naked guy really the, the best way to promote your band? It was that nude, muscular man that Hardcore had been looking for. I agree. Yeah. No, it's, <laughs> it's Superman without the clothes. Yes. And, you know, no hair. Yep. Um, I want to ask you something. Because uh, you talked about not asking bands what they want. I know this from the limited amount of work I've done for other bands and from trying to do things by committee in a band. Do you almost sometimes just wish or think about stepping away from doing work for other people? I mean, you got to pay the bills, but there's something to be said for purity of vision. I cannot stand having people over my shoulder on something visual. Like when we were working, when we were trying to come up with what the album cover was going to be in China's Club, I would have to hide the fact that these little minuscule adjustments that people wanted made struck me as uninformed and just struck me as change for change's sake. It isn't fair to them. It just mm-hmm. has to do with the fact that I think artists exist within the space between their own ears, and sometimes they don't find satisfaction until their singular vision is on the page. But a guy like you, who's even more exacting than me, I know this from firsthand experience, I should think at some point along the last 30 years, your head would have exploded by now. I mean, if you could have total autonomy and survive, would you just write off working with others? Um, it's kind of a it's kind of an odd question right now because I, <clears throat> I've been recording and there's been a lot of compromises and things that kind of didn't go the way I wanted them to. And the way that I had written the record, it's, we're doing a trigger man record. Yeah. And right uh, now I think you're discussing music, not art, right? But I understand how psychologically it can be the same thing. Yeah, actually it's, it's, it kind of I'll circle back a little bit, but um, you know that's the. I realize that I'm pretty good at, at accepting criticism and um, direction and guidance on artwork because it's professionally what I've been doing for a long time now, mm-hmm. and I realize that's part of it. And I I again kind of re- going back to redefining the rules whenever I work for somebody, I kind of think in terms of this is only going to be successful if we both like it and it goes out there and, you know, it has its own life. If I only like it and the band doesn't like it, it's not going to work. If if the band likes it and I hate it, it's like, well, it's, it's disappointing, but that's just kind of the way it goes. I I still satisfy the job if they like it. What I generally, to do in those those instances is I try to do a version that I like myself and just keep that as my own uh, maybe portfolio piece and the other thing kind of goes out there in the world and whatever happens happens. That's a perspective you've grown into because when we were younger I could it was very easy to sense your annoyance really? during, during any time when creativity required, required some sort of effort by, by committee and it's only now as I get older and I try to learn to do more than one thing which is scream out of key that I grasp it you know, and it, it's it's one of the reasons I couldn't be a journalist. As much passion and admiration as I have for it, I mm-hmm. every editor I've ever met is somebody I'd like to see dead now. <laughs> you know, yeah. Well, that's kind of the way I got with the 
the the trigger man record is I, I love doing it. I didn't, I didn't want to do it in the first place, but I, I just kind of figured if I do it, I'm going to do exactly what I want. If they like it, they like it. If they don't, we just don't do the record. It's not that big a deal. And um, another philosophical question. Do you think that it is a cynicism on the part of men racing through their fifties? Well, I'm sure it's true of women in their fifties from the scene too, or that we just, everything was new at the time, but to my eye, creativity and uniqueness of effort has gone out of vogue for more than a decade. And truly rare or unusual product isn't celebrated, it's, it's rejected. You know, like oh, something has to be understood and digestible within the sphere of hardcore and punk rock to really make any waves. Could be a yeah. romanticism, but I think in our youth, the exact opposite is true. Black Flag was nothing like Bad Religion, Bad Religion was nothing you know, like the bands from up in the valley, you know, yeah. and the East Coast was scary because they had no hair and they ran around a lot more, you know. Yeah, I, I watched the documentary on, on Fat Records and I was, I'm not real familiar with a lot of the bands, but I was really struck with the similarity of, of all the bands. And it was, it was kind of disappointing to me because I, I, I know Mike is, is a real, you know, he's definitely a punk rock guy and he's, He's, it, you can't really question his, uh, his bona fides, but the, the similarity of all those bands is just kind of annoying to me. And, sorry, I lost my train of thought. The, uh, I just think it was not always thus. And I'm wondering whether you think the same thing. It was not, what was not? It was not always that way, in my opinion. Oh, yeah. No, I think that it's, it kind of became codified with, the more video and the more um, fanzines and the more uh, merchandising that happened and all that, everybody just kind of became the same. And with the, the trigger man not going the way I wanted it to, I mean, I, I, I'm overall really happy with the record, but there were, there were things that I felt like were just a struggle to get through. And for me, and since then I just started writing like crazy just for myself. And it was, it was almost like it started as um, experiments to try to, you know, play around with production stuff and um, recording at home. And then I kind of realized I keep listening to this stuff. Like I just, I like it. I'm doing it strictly for myself. I kind of like the idea that nobody's heard it because nobody's ruined what it is to me. Like I like these things as as they are, and I, I listen to it. And I'm like, oh, that's you know, that's cool. I, that's I've never heard that before. Um, but I don't know if it would be something that anybody else would like. But I also, I mean, I mean, the I have the luxury of not having to worry about supporting myself with it. The last band that I finished an LP in, which is I believe still a band. It's hard to know if music is still a thing and live music is still a thing. Yeah. Um, the last LP that I, you know, compiled and completed with, with a band, I wouldn't be surprised if for six months to a year I listened to anything but that record. Mm -hmm. And it's because it's an agenda-free piece of work and because it's written completely on its own terms. You know, it's, it's, it wasn't, wasn't concerned with classification. It wasn't concerned with acceptance. It's a band that plays in tiny-ass rooms to tiny-ass crowds and leaves it all out there. And it, Maybe it's just that I've aged out on on the adulation thing, or on the or on the 
promote a band ladder. It's incredibly satisfying. Just in yeah. the the adulation is nice, but it's it uh the best shows I've ever played. I always left those shows driving home thinking, well, that's over. Like just kind of there's always like this weird feeling of, of loneliness after playing a show. Like you, you have this thing where all these people are together and sharing the same experience and then you leave and it's, it's just gone. Like you have the memory, but there's, there's always kind of been like an emptiness to me after shows. And, uh, I, I don't know. It's, it's, uh, if you like what you're doing and you're doing something you're proud of, it shouldn't really matter. Like it's, of course, it's nice to have people like what you do, but going back to the, you know, punk rock for, I don't want to be any part of a society that, that wasn't really that interested in me in the first place or that accepted of me. Why should I care if they like me or not? You know, I'm, I'm doing what I wanted. Um, I like it. I think it's good for what I wanted to do. I was, you know, I was saying to somebody not too long ago, I haven't made a lot of good records, I don't think, but I've made a lot of successful records in that they were records I wanted to make and they sounded, I did what I wanted to do. So my, most I, my, my most popular records are my least favorite. Yeah. You know, our most popular band is one that neither one of us has much use for. Yeah. You know. No for an answer was literally us, lear I mean, me especially, learning how to play an instrument. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you had had a little experience beforehand. I don't, yeah, but I'm not sure exactly which monster from the series of Japanese monster movies that I was trying to portray with the vocals on the LP, you know, but I didn't nail it. It's certainly not a human trying to make a co coherent point. It's some weird thing that rises up out of the ocean and snatches planes from the air. You know. well, I, think, I think a lot of... There's probably a, a component to that that people like and people respond to, like the the primitive, unvarnished mm -hmm. records that we put out. Because I, there's a bunch of stuff on those records I wanted to fix at the time, but mm -hmm. it wasn't really financially feasible, and there didn't seem to be a big appetite in the band to go back and fix anything. And it's like, well, that's what we sounded like. Right. Right. Yeah. Um broad questions and if you need me to put a finer point on them I will but there's stuff I really want to get to in this besides the archiving um do you have a pr primary medium I mean I think of you largely as a painter but you're fantastic with graphics to inside baseball for people watching this Gavin and I still work together quite a bit artistically what will happen is I'll be in a band and we'll get to a point where what is needed for the cover exists outside my skill set so I will do some mock-up or some loose suggestion of it using my crayons and my and my and my you know my crayons and my coloring books and then Gavin will go do the real version. Um so you're you're skilled with the tablet, with a computer, um, your sense of spatial relationships, your grasp of type values and everything else. But you're an over-the-top painter, um, and you're quite the musician. What would you call your primary artistic medium? Uh, you know, literally until about the last month or two, mm -hmm. I would say that 
I had been a much more successful artist in terms of a musician. Not that I was uh, necessarily a great musician, but I solely followed what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. I never really tried to do what I thought would be successful or what I thought people wanted to hear. Um, with art, I kind of realized at a certain point I was doing the opposite. I was doing what I thought people expected of me and what I had made money doing and um, kind of being stuck with that. Well, it's got to look a certain way. It's got to be a certain amount of polish. It can't be um, too artistic. And it, it just got very, very safe. That poisons the well, doesn't it? How do you mean? I should just think it would affect your love for the craft. Yeah, well, I, I kind of realized that I had been in probably like a 10 or so year rut with painting. I yeah. just kept crying and I just kept not working out. And at a certain point, I, it's so simple, but I realized I'm doing all the stuff I stopped doing when I got hired to do professional work. Right. I started literally holding the brush different. I started um, looking at things differently. I, I started, uh, you know, I wouldn't do something that wasn't fairly defined. You know, when I was doing stuff for Disney, you can't have Disney characters look like they have like a, a mouse. Mickey Mouse has real fur. You know, it, it yeah. just looks creepy. So you kind of have to get to this stylized version. And I noticed about two or three months ago that all the things I thought of or I thought I was trying to get to, I wasn't doing in the proper sequence. I was doing paintings in a way that was inconsistent with how I wanted the paintings to look. Okay. It seems really, really basic and really obvious, but when I started thinking about it, all the things I embraced when I was sort of doing computer work, meaning a lot of texture, a lot of, uh, a lot of things that look like they're spilled or splattered and, and all these things that were done in a very specific way to look careless, but still, you know, would have Mickey Mouse or Winnie the Pooh or whatever on it and look right. But to do that in computer, you get sort of an organic feel. And that's the way I used to paint. And I kind of stopped painting like that. It's like I started painting more like a computer and doing computer work more like a, a painter. Interesting. It, I don't know what, what happened. I think it was just I did the, the type professional work for so long that I stopped thinking about what I wanted it to be. I kept thinking it's got to look like the person I'm painting. It's got to be, um, you know, everything has to be correct. Mm -hmm. and one of the parts that I was having trouble with when I was kind of going through this, this rut was I hated doing paintings of celebrities and people go, Oh, you like, you love Nicole Kidman, don't you? Cause I painted her a couple times. And it's not that I like Nicole Kidman so much. I like that she's pale. I like the way she's usually lit. It seems like photographers tend to photograph her a certain way. So it, it kind of lends, itself to the to being a subject of the stuff I like to paint. I'm convinced that Ellen von Unworth photography exists only so that 
she can finally get a woman on one of my album covers. You know, a photograph of a woman. You know, I've, I've heard that. <laughs> but what I'm, I'm so I kind of what I get what some get us I'm saying is like I kind of understand your fixations. There, you, you fall in love with certain values or ways somebody is often presented, and you want to do your take on it or you want to work with it. If that makes any sense. Yeah, well, in a lot of ways, it's sort of like the way you start a band. You start a band, you know. I think it's next to impossible to start a band and try to do something that's uniquely your own without trying to emulate something that you've been influenced by on some level. I think it's just human nature where you just kind of, that's the starting point. I want to do something really obvious here, but I think it will make, it will make people scratch their heads. Mm -hmm. People who know you, who are friends with you in Orange County or sort of understand the planet Gavin, Mm -hmm. this won't be a shock, but I think most people watching this, they'll be shocked to know that's a painting behind you, not a print, not a litho, not some, you know, unique find in the in the, in the minor thread archives yeah that's it's actually john bruce's jacket john bruce is huge <laughs> <laughs> i was like that's not john bruce's jacket you fucker you got me but so why do you end up doing that has to have been massively time consuming but i'm betting it was incredibly satisfying so tell me about doing that specific piece okay <laughs> It's something I've wanted for a long time. I thought of buying a print of that that image for forever. Like I always thought when I was a kid almost, if I ever have the money, not when I was a kid, but you know, when I sort of a young adult, if I ever had the money, I'd want to get a good print of that. And I wanted it to be big and bold. And I talked to the photographer and she didn't Really? Who shot who shot it? Uh It'll come to me. Um, it's it's not one of the names you would think of, like one of the DC photographers. Well, leave it to uh, me to get you in trouble by asking you on camera. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm trying to. Don't get uh, snagged on it. If I remember it, I'll type. If I find out, I'll type it on the screen. So you, Susie Horgan, I think. Okay. Or Horgan. So you chase down the source. So you chase down the photographer. Yeah, I went through Discord, and I guess Ian talked to her, and you know, she kind of made me feel good that that Ian had a question on my behalf. Um, and I asked her how much it would cost to get a good, a good size print. It turned out she kind of took a while to get back to me and it, it got, it was real expensive and wasn't as big as I wanted. So I decided to do my own. And I did that image because it's, it was one of those records where I ordered it strictly on the look of the record from a discord ad and it just turned out to be like to me that's the perfect hardcore record like it it wasn't as good before that or after it it's just to me start to finish that's the the minor threat record that i most connect with and it was my first exposure to them uh but yeah doing the the, the image of it i kind of realized that i had never seen a good reproduction of it you did it on a jacket that had a seam directly down the middle of Alex's head. Yeah, it drove me crazy. <laughs> As, like one of one of my best friends was just like, "Oh, really? There's a seam there. You can't do that." But I, I think five years later, you'd have told him, "Fuck no." <laughs> no. Yeah, yeah. I think I needed the money at the time. I was, you know, I was really desperate. But I, 
I just wanted something to be striking, and I don't have any kind of punk rock stuff up at my house uh, other than this, really, or in, in the studio. And I, I just kind of like the idea of, of studying the photograph and kind of learning about it almost. And I realized that there's little there's a little bit of a reflection on his head, like he had just been in the show, which I thought was kind of interesting. I'd never noticed that. It's made mm-hmm. it seem a little more immediate. And then I, I think that's a little razor right there. Okay. So I'm wondering if they were shaving heads at the show, because I heard they did that in DC sometimes. There's like cigarettes and there's a pen. Uh, I think there's a matchbook there too. Oh. And then a, a pillow back up there. It has far greater depth than people pick up when they're holding the actual record. Well, the thing is, it's, it's never print, never prints right. I've seen prints on the, the internet of the actual photo where you can see a lot more detail, but when it, you know, it's printed cheaply on the, the initial seven inches, they lost a lot of detail in the blacks and all that. So I made a point to do the, to look at a bunch of different photographs and kind of pick out the, all the images I, or all the components I wanted, like the, the um, the thing on the jacket, and then I noticed this is one thing I love is I noticed the stitching on the boots, which yeah. you can't really, you can't see in the picture, but I realized I always thought that there was like a double sole on the boots, and they were boots exactly like I used to have, and I'm like, wait, those are stitches, so I kind of accentuated those a little bit more, but but the, you know the gray the grays. And the shine on his head are why I texted you and told you that you need, you need to leave that fucking thing in your will for me. And yeah, Gavin, yeah. Gavin's, Gavin's response was lovely. Do you want to tell him what you said? Uh, I said the chances are pretty good you're dying first. <laughs> so, something to that effect. That's my boy. Well, listen. Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, but I mean, there's, if Casey had it, he would realize that it's better than his jacket. That would make me feel bad. Mm-hmm. It seems like you, you should have it. <laughs> I need something to make up for those damn white sleeves on my leather. You know. <laughs> yeah, well, it, you know, I feel I kind of felt bad for you. So okay, you know, black well, sleeve. I think you and I should maybe do one of these at the end of every season or something because I think it's already my longest episode, and oh. I could keep going. I'm not going to wrap it up yet, but. What we've established here is, is sort of a purity of vision, a real self-awareness creatively, certain standards you hold yourself to creatively. You've had some fun with the history. I would never in a million years have pictured either one of us as married, let alone parents. And now I'm divorced and raising a black cat who's got a bigger belly than I do. You, on the other hand, have a wife and a little boy. Yes. What of the Gavin Oglesby story that I grew up with and of the values and the experiences that were part of punk rock and that are relevant to this podcast play a role in parenting and how. I mean, you're punk rock dad. There's no getting around. Yeah. Um, I think that the, the main thing is just, I've, I've tried my best to be always straight with my son. And if I don't know what's going on, I'll tell him and I'll try to, Try to not freak him out that I don't know what's going on, but I, I was just trying to be straight with him, and that's um, it's worked out well so far. You know, I've, I've been we've been really lucky that we have a, a good um, moral, a good person. Yeah, 
which is all, all I really wanted to do. He doesn't, doesn't always do the best in school. He does overall, he does well, but he always tries and he's morally, he's solid, which I love. That's gotta be, that's gotta be extremely fulfilling. Well, listen, yeah. I had to, I had to talk you into doing this and I hope you're glad, I hope you're glad you did. No, um, yeah, it was very easy. Okay. I would very much like to do it again, you know, a few months, few months down the line. And, uh, I think what you and I have to do is limit our scope of subject matter so that we, so that we don't end up creating a mini series. Um, but uh, thank you so much, Gavin, and thank you for being so open and for tolerate for tolerating somewhat bizarre questions. Uh, well, I appreciate being asked, actually. All right, sir. Well, I'm going to hit that button. That's episode twenty. Hey, thank you. One Hit Thunder is a podcast where we both celebrate and have a good laugh about bands and artists that had just one hit that we all know. Each week, we're joined by a guest from the world of music or comedy to learn more than you ever thought you would about some songs that you can't forget, and we decide if they brought the One Hit Thunder or were nothing more than a one hit blunder. Look, if you listen to the show, you're probably going to laugh, and I guarantee you're going to crush next time the bar has music trivia. Tag Team, Jane Child, Meredith Brooks, Looking Glass, Sean Mullins, Eiffel 65, EMF, Crash Test Dummies, Crazy Town, Chumbawamba. We have hundreds of episodes in our back catalog and a new episode each week. So pass the duchy, make sure you're connected, and subscribe to One Hit Thunder wherever you get your pods.